Good morning. Good to see you guys. Good morning to everyone online. Good morning to our friends at Farmington Hills. We're one church in two locations. So glad to be with you guys in Farmington Hills today. I just wanted to say I really love this church and I really appreciate being a pastor at this church. You guys are great. I just felt led to say that this morning. And yeah, just felt led to say that. Uh, Let's go before our Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, we come to you and your mighty sons, Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open it up to us this morning and speak to us. God, move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, you know what they need. You know what they're going through. Father, meet them where they are. God, we pray that you would speak to us today. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Black Abolitionist Archive can be found at Detroit Mercy University. Several years ago, in the late 20th century, there was an international search to recover all of the various sermons and speeches and poetry and letters from African-American abolitionists around the world. And the idea was to gather all of that documentation and see it placed in one location. In 1998, the Black Abolitionist Archive, all of these different documents were donated to Detroit Mercy University, where it can be accessed today. It's right here in our metro area. You can also access it digitally. And this week, as I was accessing it, I came across a story of a woman by the name of Charlotte Grimke. Charlotte Grimke. Now, I was familiar with Charlotte's husband, Francis Grimke, who was a former slave who went on to Princeton Theological Seminary and became a Presbyterian pastor. He pastored a very influential church in Washington, D.C. He now has a seminary named after him in Virginia, Grimke Theological Seminary. So I was familiar with Charlotte's husband, but I wasn't as familiar with Charlotte's story And Charlotte was a Christian missionary in her own right. She was an abolitionist in her own right who dedicated her life to teaching children in South Carolina. She moved to South Carolina from Philadelphia to teach newly freed children. And what struck me most about Charlotte's story was that Charlotte was born free, wealthy, into an educated family in Philadelphia. Her family was one of the richest families in Philadelphia. They were business people, and she was born with a lot of privileges and rights. She had the rare privilege of being an educated and wealthy African-American woman in a time when that was really rare, and she never used her freedom or her privileges for herself. As a matter of fact, she leveraged her freedom for the benefit of others. She never had to go south. She never had to go to South Carolina But when she asked the question of, what shall I do with my freedom, she she leveraged that freedom for the good of others. As Christ followers, we have to ask that question of, what will I do with my freedom? By God's grace, we've been saved. We've been given new freedom in the gospel. We're saved from sin, death, and the grave. We're saved by grace not by works, and we've been given this great new freedom, and the question for each and every one of us is, what will I do with my freedom? This idea of freedom 
and grace, it's been giving theologians a, a headache for years. If you give people this much freedom and grace, well, won't they abuse it? Won't people take advantage of the grace of God? Surely we have to tack the law on because we can't give people that kind of freedom and grace. And so theologians have struggled with this question for years. But that's often because we have a misinterpretation of grace and come to see grace as nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free card and, 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 a way to, and a way to get to heaven. But God has much more for us in his grace than a get-out-of-jail-free card. He wants to walk with us in this life. He has grace for us in eternity. He has riches stored up for us in eternity, and he's preparing a place for his church. But he also has grace for the believer in this life. He wants to walk with us now. It's sort of like when I go to the mall or Target or Target with my wife, and my wife wants me to walk with her. She didn't just want me to stay in the car. She wants me to get out of the car and walk with her through the mall or through Target. But sometimes, sometimes I really don't want to do all of the walking. I don't want to get 10,000 steps on my Apple Watch today. I just, some days I don't want to do all the walking. I, I prefer to do the old man thing is just find myself a nice bench somewhere and sit down and wait until she returns. God doesn't want us just sitting around waiting for him to return. But he wants to walk with us now. He gave us freedom so that we can walk with him. My freedom is not a license to live for me, but an opportunity to live for the one who purchased my freedom. My freedom is not a license to live for me, but an opportunity to live for the one who purchased my freedom. He set us free so that we could walk with him. That's why. That's why we're free. Last week in Acts chapter 15, we talked about this freedom of the gospel. We talked about this freedom and this grace that has been given us by Christ's finished work on the cross. We talked about this good news and the decision that was made at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And, and that council determined that we no longer have to keep the law in order to be saved. We're saved by faith. We're saved by faith in Christ. And now as we transition to Acts chapter 16, you're seeing Paul and his companions beginning to share that message with the other churches in their area and even in other nations. They're beginning to take the good news and spread this good news that we've been set free by the gospel. So we pick up in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So a little context here. This is Paul's second time going to this region. He had been to Derby and Lystra once before, and he actually saw God really bless that first missionary journey. As a result of that first missionary journey, there were churches established, people came to faith, disciples were beginning to grow and develop, and one of those disciples was a young man by the name of Timothy, who was developing a good reputation for being a trustworthy young leader. 
Uh, also, the first time that Paul came to, to this area, he experienced persecution. He faced a lot of resistance. He was actually beaten nearly to death, stoned nearly to death on his first journey. And so, so there's also, though there was great uh, evidence of God's faithfulness and fruit and people coming to faith in this region, there was also great resistance in this region as he went back to preach the gospel a second time. And he met this young man by the name of Timothy, and Timothy came from mixed heritage. His mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek, which made Timothy the perfect protege for Paul as he was navigating these Greek and Jewish tensions in the church. That would make Timothy the perfect protege to come along, uh, along him, alongside him in this journey. And so that's what happens. And in verse 3, we see that Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So this gets a little confusing, being that last week all we talked about was that they had this big debate on whether or not people had to be circumcised. Okay, here's a head scratcher. So he circumcised him. Paul wanted to take Timothy along. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area for all they knew, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so at, at this point in history, to make matters even more confusing, in this point in history, if your mother was Jewish, culturally, according to the Jewish law, you were supposed to take the religion and culture of your mother. Simultaneously, according to the Greeks, if you were Greek, you were supposed to take the religion and the culture of your father. So Timothy finds himself in an odd spot. And so with that being said, he took on the culture of his father. So Timothy had never been circumcised. His father was Greek. And so what's happening? Why now Paul shows up and asks Timothy, asks Timothy to be circumcised after we have this huge debate about why that's not necessary? A couple of things are at play here. First of all, life is complicated, all right? Life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. The church can be complicated because we have these gray areas of freedom where we have to decide how are we going to use the freedoms that God has given us. Timothy does not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Timothy does not have to be circumcised to be accepted into the church. So we have to get that on the table. This is not necessary. This isn't Paul contradicting himself. Another thing at play here, circumcision is obviously not Timothy's first preference because <laughs> he's not circumcised. That's not his first preference. And at this point in his life, he probably doesn't want to get circumcised. So that's another factor at play here. What we're seeing, though, is Timothy laying down his rights, laying down his preferences for the sake of the mission. There's something bigger at play here than his preferences. It's a, it's a little costly for him to go on this, on this journey but he's willing to do it because the gospel and people coming to know Christ is even more important than his preferences or his comfort. And he's learning this from his mentor, Paul. We see this in 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about this exact same thing. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. He's, he's got a bigger vision in mind here. To those under the law, I became as one under 
the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's willing to pivot. He's willing to be flexible. He's willing to adapt to the needs of the people around him in order to win some of them to Christ. Let's, let's continue. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. He's, he's willing to flex here. All of this, I have become all things to all people, that by all means, all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. There is something more important to Paul and Timothy than their preferences, than what they like, than their flavor or their style of how things are done. They are about the kingdom of God, their own mission, and they show that by being willing to lay down their preferences. Here's what we know. Christian maturity requires a willingness to lay down my rights and hold loosely to my plans. Christian maturity requires the willingness to lay down my rights and hold loosely to my plans. Not salvation, not going to heaven, but maturity and growth requires a willingness to lay down my rights and hold loosely to my plans. Another word for maturity is Christ-likeness, becoming more like Christ. He is the one who sets the ultimate example of what it means to lay down our rights. He left heaven to come to earth. He left heaven to come to this place, to earth. I'm not trying to bash on earth or nothing like that. But compared to heaven, the earth is real ghetto. It's like a real ghetto place. Just saying. <laughs> he left heaven to come down here. He, he laid down his rights. And following him means following Jesus in that same kind of lifestyle. That's maturity. And this showed, this showed great maturity for Timothy and Paul to be willing to do this for the sake of the mission that they had been called to. Let, let's see what happens as a result of this as we continue in the text. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered... The decisions, the decisions from the council that said that they no longer have to keep the law, that people no longer have to be circumcised. So they're delivering this message, they're delivering this decision reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for their people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So as a result of them being willing to lay down their rights and die to themselves, God has brought them along for this mission and now the churches are being strengthened by the good news of the gospel because they're learning about the grace of God and what Jesus did for them on the cross and what that means for their lives now. The church is becoming strong and people are coming to faith daily. My friends, this is what revival look like, looks like. This is what revival looks like when the church is being strengthened and revived and people are coming to faith daily. I've been doing a little research on revival this week, and I came across this from John Piper, a pastor. He says, the idea 
of revival originates in the reality that on the one hand, God is the decisive giver of all spiritual life. So God is the life giver. That's the first part of this equation. And on the other hand, humans, even those who are born again and are part of God's covenant family from time to time, drift into a kind of lifelessness and lethargy and backsliding and indifference and weakness. So even those of us who have professed Christ, we can, we can tend to drift into indifference. And when you put those two together, God as the giver of life, and man as ever drifting towards lifelessness, what you get is the need for the hope of reviving, coming back to life, a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his mission. That is what revival is. When God pours out his spirit and his life on us as we're drifting away from life, and drifting away from the leading of the Spirit. He pours out his Spirit on us. There's a lot of desire for revival in in our world and in our nation. But revival happens when we're broken. The Spirit of God falls on the broken and on the weak and on the willing. You don't need nothing fancy or creative to see revival take place. You don't need that in your personal life, and you don't need that to see it happen in the world. What we need in order to experience revival is brokenness and humility and confession and repentance before God. And when we are at that place, then he pours out his spirit on us. We can't preach our way into revival. We can't market and advertise our way into revival. We can't strategize and think our way into revival. We can't manipulate God into pouring out his spirit. Now, he meets us in our weakness and in our brokenness when he knows that we are willing to yield to his spirit. A man by the name of Roy Hessians writes about this in his book, The Calvary Road. This is my favorite book. I try to read it as often as I can. He says, if however we are to come into this right relationship with him, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to his will. To be broken is the beginning of revival. To be broken is the beginning of revival. So friends, if you are broken today, if you feel weak today, if you feel like you're at the end of yourself today, you actually are not in a bad spot you're probably a step, you're a step away from revival. If we're going to see revival in the nation, how, how we talk about, it begins with us being broken. If we want to see revival in the nation, we, we must first see revival in the church. It requires brokenness and humility in the church. The spirit isn't going to fall on a proud, arrogant church that thinks it has it figured out. So if we want to see revival in the nation, it begins with brokenness and humility and revival in the church. And if we're going to see revival in the church, it begins with brokenness and humility in the home. And if we're going to see revival in our homes, it begins with brokenness and humility in the mirror in our personal lives. It's right there in front of us. Just that brokenness precedes revival. And it's happening in some places. It's happening in some of your individual lives. So it's not some far-fetched idea. 
But if we want to see that kind of revival, it first starts with our personal brokenness. Let's continue. We see Paul and his companions continuing to travel. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word. What kind of stuff is that? These guys are on a mission. These guys are seeing revival break out, and they were headed to Asia, and now they're prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word. So having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, when they came to the border of Mycia, they tried to enter, enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. This requires a lot of humility once again. Christian maturity requires a willingness to lay down my rights and hold loosely to my plans. They had a plan. They were doing good. They were leading a revival, and they knew where they wanted to go next. Paul had a plan, but God told him to pivot. He was willing to pivot. Now, they would eventually go back to Asia. A church was planted there. The church at Ephesus was planted there. But at this time, God tells them to pivot, and they keep going west. And we see that in verses 9 to 10. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once. Check out that willingness. They got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And my friends, this is when they went west and they went to Europe. And the first churches were planted in Europe that would influence the west, by which we are a part of as Westerners. Because of their faith and their willingness to yield to the Spirit, Many people were blessed. Christian maturity requires a willingness to lay down my rights and hold loosely to my plans. These days, uh, nothing makes me happier than getting a good report about my two-year-old daughter. Getting a good report from the daycare or the nursery just makes my day. I I love hearing about her taking steps of maturity, steps of growth. I love hearing that she's actually applying some of the things that we're trying to teach her at home. And one of the things we've been trying to teach her recently is about sharing, how to share, how to share with others. Because right now, her favorite word is mine. (laughs) Mine, everything is mine. She's mine, 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 mine. And so a couple, couple weeks ago, we got a letter from her daycare And the letter said, Luca saw one of her friends crying after her friend's balloon had popped. And Luca gave her friend her only balloon. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. She's willing to share and and give give the other kid her balloon. But that means she didn't have a balloon. And that lets me know that, man, she gave and served and helped in a way that actually cost her something. That, that was really big. I'm like, I don't know if I would have gave up the balloon. I don't know, Luca. <laughs> but she served and gave and helped in a way that was costly. She was willing to let go. In that moment, something mattered more than her own personal entertainment. And sometimes God is calling us to let go. He's calling us to be willing to let go of our plans. He's calling us to be willing to let go of our way. 
he, sometimes he's calling us to be willing to let go of getting the last word in the argument because that can be very difficult if you think you're right. And it takes faith to let go. It takes faith to say, I'm going to let this thing go. I'm going to let my plans go. And not my will, God, but yours. And when that happens over time, over time we become, we become more trusting of him. We begin to trust him more. If you let it go once, you learn that he's trustworthy and he's good. And I can let it go. I can, I can trust that even if I let this go, he still has me. I can trust but it's hard, right? It's hard to be willing to let go of these things and trust God, to let go of control, to let go of a plan, to let go of a direction that you had your mind set on going. But Christian maturity requires a willingness to lay down my rights and let go of my plans. And when that happens, God does some cool things when we're, when we're willing to let go. And I don't know who's going to get that down. But thank you. God is the first one who gave sacrificially and let go. He gave his only son. He, he met us there. He modeled sacrifice. He modeled love for us. And we can trust him. He doesn't love us any more or any less because of this. But he surely does delight when we're willing to follow him and take those steps into maturity. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name. God, thanking you for the sacrifice that you first made. God, you gave your best. You gave your only. You gave us your son. And for that, we are forever grateful. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to trust you and to walk with you and live the life that you called us to live. We know that you love us regardless, but God, I, I pray that we would grow as people who are strengthening in our faith, who are strengthening in our discipleship. God, I pray for families here. I pray for brokenness in the home. I pray that you would show us how to, God, let things go in our home. I pray for humility and brokenness in marriages. I pray for humility and brokenness in parental relationships with kids. I pray for that kind of revival in each and every one of our homes. God, I pray for the kind of revival in our individual lives that we wouldn't come to you so rigid with what we think life is to be and what life is about, but we would be willing to yield and let things go and trust what you're going to do. God, we thank you and we love you. See your son, Jesus, now we pray. Amen.